And that was The Smiths with These Things Take Time from the album Louder Than Bombs. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should, always playing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be Paul Frederick from The Family Cat, so expect quality chat, as always, and alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But um, to kick off the show, he says, I think we should play your favourite of mine. This is Tom Verlaine.
And that was the family cat with their track, probably their first ever single that came out on FlexiDisc, titled Tom Verlaine. And this week's special guest is going to be Paul Frederick from The Family Cat, because I caught up with him a few months ago to find out about life, love and poetry and all that groovy stuff that happens when you're in an indie rock band back in the day. Anyway, so I want to bring you that interview um, in about three or four easy to digest little segments in the latter half of the show, when I say latter half, latter half, probably after this next track, this is going to be taken from the album Furthest from the Sun. This is titled Colour Me Grey, and then Quality Chat. OK, take it away.
my God, still sounding as good today as it did back then. That was the family cat in the track called Colour Me Grey that came from their second album, Furthest From The Sun. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show, always bringing you the finest in indie pop. Anyway, this week's special guest is Paul uh, Frederick, who is currently in a band called Jack Adapter, who are supporting Cud. Yes, Cud, on the 27th of October. This might have been and gone by then. And also are going to be at the Shine Weekend Festival, which is actually Friday the... Yes, Friday the 16th of November. Mindhead, check it out. Anyway, this is the first part of my interview with Paul. And uh, this is where we were talking about the 80s, as old people always do, and our memories of it, which is sometimes a bit hazy. But um, yes, I just wanted to um, sort of catch up about the beginnings of the band. And this was Paul's response. Paul, your response, please. I think it was, yeah. I mean, I remember my memories of the 80s are of being uh, of coming into the 80s, being being a punk in the 70s, uh, and then you know post punk came along, and I was very interested in a lot of those bands. You know, I was really into things like 20 Through Skidoo and and uh, ATV and Wire and things like that. And then and then all of a sudden, by about 83, 84, I'd got completely disenchanted with. Uh, rock music, British rock music. And I went off, I, I went into a completely different direction. So I stopped listening to rock music altogether and I started to get really interested in jazz, funnily enough. So um, by 87, I was a little bit more grown up and I had, I had a quite wide music taste. And the music seemed, seemed to, to, to me. And then a couple of, I met John Graves. We, we worked together at Yulu uh, doing um, security. For oh, gigs, excellent. doing front of house for the for gigs. So we would do like the Redskins, and later on we did Sonic Youth and things like that. You know, so we were was getting into the shows for free and seeing all the shows, all the gigs there. And, and I kind of like our mutual for for me and John anyway, who uh, we uh, we had a, like a mutual distrust of what was going on <laughs> musically. Yeah. And our tastes were very, very different. We weren't. Very, I, I wasn't interested at all. And the Smiths didn't move me in one. Not one. It, it just didn't happen for me. The Smiths. Oh, I can see why. I can see why. I can see why other people were really into it. But for me, it just it seemed um, anodyne, and it, and it still sounds like that to me. Um, so when it was kind of around about the time when the Jesus and Mary chain were kind of like kicking up their heels a little bit and there was a little bit of edge and rock, it was all right to rock again, you know. And me and John kind of and met up with uh, Tim and Jelba, who who, uh, who um, had been in bands together in Cornwall and then come up to London to make their fame and fortune. And we kind of said, well, let's 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 do music ourselves. And I would have been a jazz musician if I'd had any musical ability whatsoever, but I didn't. I could play three chords and a guitar. So that's what we did. And when we put the band together, we were originally, there were four, John Graves is actually a very good guitarist. And um, so we put this band together when there were effectively four guitar players. That's all we had. So we found a drummer, uh, John Sykes, his name was, who then we were, it was a bit like this bit of Spinal Tap. <laughs> We had John Sykes and then Barry Gribble and then finally Kev, jo, uh, Kev Downing came in. The other two died in um, the gardening accidents. <laughs> and 
John moved onto the bass because usually the bass player is the, probably usually the best musician in the band in terms of, you know, timing and tuning. And, and we kind of just took it from there, really, without any... Uh, it was more about what we... Not what we didn't like. Well, I think we had certain influences that were very strong. They weren't of music of that period, though. So we were really into, like, Nuggets, Garage. Uh, 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 we used to do a version of Action Woman, you know, things yes. like that. We really loved the Velvets. We loved Creedence Clearwater Revival. It was that kind of the birds and stuff like that where we were coming we were definitely coming from a kind of like a garage rock yes we weren't coming i don't think we ever thought of ourselves as an indie rock band no not at all. I, no, it didn't really it didn't really exist then we certainly saw ourselves differently we certainly saw ourselves in the opposite camp to something like the wedding present which yes. i always think is indie you know um we we were trying to make I mean, I always think that uh, uh, Clint Boone from the Inspirals had always said something interesting, as he said, he he was always rather surprised that they ever got famous because he said they were just trying to do their, their little band doing their garage rock songs. And they, they came, that was what we were doing, really. Yeah, because actually the one band that I was obsessed with during that period was Husker Du, who I thought had those kind of, um, though they were quite loud at times, but they also had a kind of a, a sort of a bit of a birdsy quality with their sort of harmonies and some of their sort of songwriting as well. So, and they did an amazing version of Eight Miles High. So yeah. there, there was kind of on one side, there was there was Morrissey flailing around. And then, you know, you had other things like the Bundu Boys and early, rock, you know, hip hop with, you know, Public yeah. Enemy and all that kind of stuff. So obviously, but, you know, yeah. being, being someone who listened to John Peel religiously, those those kind of bands like the Butthole Surfers and Husker Du and then Big Black started to appear into yeah. our consciousness, which made that slightly fey kind of um, sensitive indie well, I think, stuff yeah. <laughs> kind yeah, of a Jelbert, bit redundant. Jelbert in the band was definitely a massive Husker Du fan and we went to see them at the Electric Ballroom, I remember, and they played for about, it felt like about five hours, you know, and it got a bit draining after a while. But uh, the, 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 the melodic element and the sustained, that guitar, the sustained kind of chorusy melodic guitar playing that Bob Mould used to do was always, I was always more impressed with that. And we took some of that sonic energy, I think, from from that band. Yeah. We tried, we tried to, we tried to uh, emulate um, certainly some aspects of that. And Big Black as well in the eight, mid '80s were kind of yes. a very important group. Yes. Well, I, I sort of Big Black were like uh, Big Black for me were a bit like uh, they sold about ten. Co- they sold maybe sold a thousand copies, but. Everybody who bought it made did a band. It's that famous old adage about the Velvet Underground. You know, didn't sell very many copies, but everybody who bought it formed a band. And I think <laughs> Big Black was Big Black were a little bit like that. Yeah, well, uh, the work of Steve Albini, and I think the first time anybody ever hears um, Kerosene, it is a bit of a yeah. It is a bit of a JFK moment, really. Where were you yeah. when you heard Kerosene? So did it take, because that's the other thing that I'm always kind of interested and curious with, with talking to people, that, that a lot of times bands have formed and things weren't going anywhere fast. And trying to get their sound, you know, to make a sound that was going to appeal to more than just their partners and a few close friends who had to keep coming to the gigs. Um, you know, it did take a while. And then suddenly something clicked and it's like, oh, this is quite good. And then... As, mm. as we with a lot of these things, you know, it was a John Peel play, and then a, and that kind of session that then meant that people around the country would want to go and see the band. Did it? Did you also have a sort of a period of 
getting the sound that that was going to be, you know, I don't know, listened to elsewhere. I, I, I think it happened actually very, very quickly. It probably happened a little bit too quickly. We were like basically in 88, we were bashing around, 87, 88, we were bashing around in Finsbury Park. And I remember Jelb and Tim organised a gig in our local pub uh, on uh, Stroudgreen Road, just in the back room of a pub. And we couldn't sound check until like half past seven because um, the locals couldn't hear uh, EastEnders if we if we were sound checking at that time. <laughs> It was like, you know, so low key and all our mates came. But we didn't do very many of those gigs like that. We all of a sudden, you know, and and then we did the first record and the first record came out and was like, you know, lauded and sold a lot of copies. And it was almost too soon because we hadn't got, we, we were still playing through, you know, handmade amps on not very good guitars and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we didn't have a lot of time to hone the sound and that kind of grew it grew we were able to grow because we did get a bit of attention i think if we'd spent you know two or three years going up and down the country in transit vans playing to nobody that might have um yes might have gone in a different way yeah. but it certainly in my memory anyway it happened pretty fast 80 i was in i, I was in france in 87 and i didn't come back until the august <laughs> september of that year and there uh, and 88 we recorded i did our first recordings so it wasn't very didn't take very long yeah and what that's um, what you did then i mean you did then you just you you rehearsed you did a few gigs you've got a demo studio we went into a demo studio in shoreditch uh in a time in the time when you didn't go to shoreditch <laughs> <laughs> uh so you know um maybe you knew where it was and did a Tom Verlaine. We recorded Tom Verlaine and a song called Bricklayer, I think, were the two songs we demoed. And then about six months later, we were in there. Uh, we were in there again. We were in, not there, but we were in a proper recording studio, relatively proper recording studio, doing recording the first single. So yes. quite fast. And that was the first part of my interview with Paul Frederick from The Family Cat. And as I said earlier, he's also... Um, one half of the um, band called Jack Adapter, who I've just found some more information. They've got an album out at this very moment. I think it's just come out, actually, called Spirit is the pa Power. I should play a track of uh, track from that before the end of the show. And they do have other live dates. I just realised, having um, seen a uh, press release, that they're playing also in London on the 10th of November at the Academy Islington, as well as The Shine weekender everyone's going to be there aren't they anyway look i think we should play some more music and then more interview this is going to be a track from the album magic happens this is wonderful excuse Sometimes 
Indeed, rock and roll. That was The Family Cat and the track called um, Wonderful Excuse. That came from their 1994 album Magic Happens. That was on Dedicated uh, Records. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Paul Frederick, who when I ask him about Bad Girl Records, because I'd never come across them before, um, after being a bit obsessed with all these other indie labels from the 80s. And this was his reply. Paul, give us your reply. Bad girl, well, I, I was working at Record and Tape Exchange. John Yates was also working at Record and Tape Exchange, and I bullied him into uh, putting a label to... No, no, he, he, he actually wanted to do... He wanted to be some kind of, like, you know, label entrepreneur, uh, and, uh, and he ended up putting out some family cat records. <laughs> <laughs> he's a nice guy, though, John. He's a good, he's a good fella. Yeah, I mean, because that's the one thing that sort of a lot of people get a bit caught up in and and sort of don't realize until years later you know did you manage to sort of navigate the, those waters of um, publishing and the admin side of music okay or were you one who sort of sort of things didn't go terribly well well i think it's a it's a mixed picture for us we uh we've definitely we were definitely indie in the ter- in the way that we wanted to be independent we wanted to make our own records. We wanted to make, we wanted to do it in our own way, do it our own style. The artwork obviously was kind of came, fell together because Ian Stronach was another fellow we knew from, from around and he was a very good artist and we coaxed him into doing a sleeve and Tony Seddon was the designer. So we, and we, you know, and John was the label and did some of the management and, we did a lot of managing ourselves and we always tour managed ourselves and John and Tim bought a van, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So we were kind of, we were a self-contained unit and things were pretty cool then. When it got a bit more serious with record deals and publishing deals, we didn't handle, I don't think we handled that very well, you know, as a unit. Was this when you moved into uh, onto the next label, Dedicated Records? Yeah, I mean that was a you know that's a strange time, you know. And was was it a case that um, you know you had people sort of fighting for your signatures? It wasn't. Well, I wouldn't say they were fighting. We had a couple of choices, and we made some choices, um, and we very often had a lot of choices to make in a band, and 
five, a five, five-person democracy is sometimes kind of uh, difficult to. I think some of the most successful bands, or are, uh, you know, very often have one or two people who have the greater, yes, the greater propulsion behind them. Let's say, either have a greater ambition or. Um, uh, yeah, we 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 spent a lot of time arguing about the politics of democracy. Excellent. That is the eighties, though, wasn't it? There was a sort of was this a kind of? Did you have a certain socialist element to the band? You know, as in most people were. Well, I, not most people, because obviously um, a lot of the country were quite far right as well. But there was also I, I have met quite a few of the bands in the eighties and and doing things in a slightly sort of anarchist but socialist kind of all voting and spending hours kind of discussing everything. And well, we we spent we got bogged down unfortunately in the politics of the music industry, which is and now I work in. The, properly work in the music industry I can kind of see what how, how that was so fruitless we just had to go on really and be as uh, as ruggedly ambitious and hard-nosed as everybody else is in the industry you know yes all our heroes you know David Bowie and uh, you know they made decisions that were artistic and business decisions and if you're not a good businessman then you get you can get turned over quite easily. Yes. Well, I think with, well, with Bowie, I think he did in the early years, didn't he, with some of his deals until he got. Yeah, wise. he made some very strange deals, but he knew, but he was in a great position of power because he was already quite wealthy. Yes. But with Whereas all... if you're scrapping around in a transit van for a hundred quid a week. Yes. You know. It, it was. Uh, I think. I think effectively, we joined, we formed a band because we all loved music and we were afraid of work. It's the old Spike Milligan, you know, thing, fear of work. <laughs> and um, we managed to avoid, we managed to avoid work for about five years and, and write some good songs and make some people happy. And I think that's, that's looking back on it, it's actually, that's quite an achievement. Yeah. At least. Well, it's interesting because cause I, I hadn't really appreciated this until I've been doing this show and doing all these interviews that most bands have um, a five-year lifespan it's almost like some sort of insect or some sort of animal whereas you know they get together they make a sound that's you know relatively good it, they get played and start sort of playing beyond their normal sort of group of friends and partners who mm-hmm. get you know have to go and see them and then they get picked up on John Peel and then they do the session you know they have the single play they do the album that's going quite well the second album's a bit tricky if any band seems to do America they come back kind of traumatized and that's (laughs) normally that's kind of like countdown to when it all finishes after America I'm not quite sure why but um well I do because they've because you have to spend such a long time in a bus with all these blokes (laughs) yes I think I think and 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 I don't know it, it seems to completely do every band in and no one's quite prepared for it and realise what's going to happen, you know, during that period and then when they get home. Yep. And, and the second album is often the, the one that sort of finishes everybody off. So five years seems to be it. So you you, you were a little bit longer in, in the lifespan of the family camp. We, it's, it's, yeah, six. Which is good. Eight, if you count 80, 88 to 94, yeah, that's six six years. Yeah. So you managed, uh, but you managed three albums as well in in that first period. Well, we did two and a half, yeah. And funny enough, the second one, although it was traumatic to make, wasn't wasn't traumatic to write. So that was quite interesting because you do know the story. You know, I mean, the classic story is that you know you 
get a bit of success, you do your first album and you, you record your first album, which you've been playing for like four years on the road, yeah. you've honed it, and then you smash it in the studio and so you've made a classic first album, and then you go on tour to promote it, and then the record company say, oh, you need an album, we need a second album, and you've got no songs. Well, we wrote songs. I mean, the Family Cat wrote, because we, we, we weren't as active, maybe, as we felt that we ought to be, we, our, our reaction to that as a band was to get into the rehearsal studio or, you know, or, and we wrote lots and lots of material. And when we came to doing the second album... Is this it, Furthest from the Sun? No, Furthest from the Sun is the first, what I count as the first album, which was... And the second one, Magic Happens, that was the one that, uh, right. that we did. We, we really wrote a lot of material for that, for that. And then when that finished, we wrote a lot more songs. We just wrote, we felt as a band, we were, probably weren't getting out on the road enough. We weren't doing enough European work. We weren't doing enough American work. We did an awful lot of touring in the UK, but you can kind of overdo that. Um, so, and in lieu of not having any hits, we took either took ourselves in the studio or it was recommended to us by dedicated that we go into the go and go off and write some some more songs because yeah. they really wanted hit they needed hits because at the time they had us cranes spiritualized and chapter house and really the only people who were going to write a hit was the family cat spiritualized had some success later on um but they weren't, they weren't, you know, chart candidates, but dedicated to decided that we were, you know, and um, maybe we weren't. Maybe we were, uh, you know, yes. maybe we were a bit old school. Maybe we were a classic old school rock album band, you know. Yes. So when, when you sort of was recording Magic Happens, was that, had the cracks started to appear in the band by then? Oh, well, there were cracks in the band at the very beginning because we all kind of like all used to argue all the time. It was quite good fun. <laughs> do you, do no, you... it was like it, it was that the magic happens was odd because we, uh, we uh, you listen to that record now and it sounds quite homogenous uh, as if it's all been done at once. And it's not, it's three different producers, three different recording sessions. Some of it's recorded in Boston, Massachusetts, some of it's recorded in London. Uh, some of it's recorded under heavy effects of special brew, you know, it's all, and the, so the actual process of that was the, was, was frustrating. And then the, I don't know what it was. It was a, a, a drive to success, which was seen perceived success was perceived in different ways by different members of the band. There you go. That's the second part of my interview with Paul Frederick from the family cat. Um, I know special brew. I just thought, Oh, don't even want to go there, really. Anyway, I did enjoy the uh, little bit that he talked about, the five-person democracy. Never going to end well. Anyway, if you want to contact me, this is David Easter on the C86 show. You can fire via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 show. I will be there, and it's always nice, as long as it's kind of positive and groovy. Otherwise, just hit delete. Anyway, look, we're going to play another track and then more interview. This is going to be uh, taken from their third album or their second album. This is Airplane Gardens.
Indeed. Exciting stuff. That was um, Airplane Gardens, and that was the family cat taken from their second album, Magic Happens. Anyway, this is David Esau, and this is going to be the third part of my interview with Paul Frederick, where we talk about, um, yes, had he sensed it was all going to be over when they were recording that album. Paul, what was your answer to that? Well, it wasn't, no, well the funny thing is, is that when we did further, and so we mentioned Furthest from the Sun, when we did Furthest from the Sun, that was kind of like 1990, 1990, 1990, 1991. Uh, we weren't signed to a label. Well, Bagger was putting out a few records for us. Um, we weren't signed to a proper label. We had a deal with a studio called Protocol Studios where people like My Bloody Valentine and... and you know, like all the Moose and all those kind of like indie alumni used to record in the early 90s. Yeah. It was in Hollow Road. It's actually just around the corner of where I live now. Uh, and the fellow in there, I can't remember his name, David, somebody, he really liked us as people and he liked the music. So basically what we did was we ran up a bill, an unpayable bill, a studio bill. And what we do was we would, uh, every day, we would have, every day we were in the studio, we'd have 10 quid. And one person would take that 10 quid and go to the supermarket and cook cook a meal in their house and then bring it into the studio. <laughs> they were living like hand to mouth and spending 250 quid a day on the studio. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. But we knew that that record, that was so we knew. So that was the really that's when the band should have. That's when the band really kind of started to teeter a little bit because of the pressure of having to push that project with no prospect of being able to get the record out properly, you know. Yes. John would have done it. John would have done it, but we needed so much more. Um, and then we did Reading. We were first on, and, and that's when all the live work paid off because we'd, cause we'd had toured Britain constantly, 80, late 88, 89, 90. By the time we did Reading... We, I remember we're standing on the stage at midday on, uh, on the Sunday and getting ready to play and pe- started to play. And then the people were just running towards the front of the stage. The field filled up, you know, the red, the field red. And that show, and we did play quite well, I think, that day, that show was the one that, tip, that got people interested. And so Dedicated, who we event- eventually went with, came in and picked up and paid the studio bill. Fantastic. And that's when our problem started. <laughs> <laughs> but what were the what were the sort of main problems that sort of came out of that? Well, there's a pressure then to to start selling a lot of records. Right. Yes. It's a tricky one. I remember a guy from Age of Chance explaining, you know, what it's like when you get the record advance and you think, wow, that's amazing. I've never seen so much money. And it's like, yeah, but OK, now half of it has to go over here. Yeah. you know quarter goes over there a little bit there and oh by the way you've got a little bit of money left you know and you know yeah. you start with this great pay you know check that you think's all yours and then you realize oh actually by the time everyone else has taken a chunk one of the yeah. members of the yeah i think they were a four-piece band you know got very little and then you think is that what i've got to live off for a year you know it's like i can't even pay the rent it's like no oh, no, rock no you and couldn't pay the rent and we all lived and we all lived off our partners right. we all basically lived on our partners if you had, a, if you were lucky enough to have a woman to live with, you we you could do it. And right. That's how we did it. And they all had to have jobs, so it was kind of punishing, <laughs> punishing uh, in in relationship terms, definitely. Yes. Well, I always remember, you know, I still do love you know Motorhead and listening to Lemmy talk about 
life in a band and and sort of you know to say you just can't have a relationship between rock and roll because it's just impossible it just doesn't work because no well i think that he's not right he's not true that's not true i think that it's very possible to have a relationship in rock and roll you just got to have the, a good you've got to have a good relationship yes but that sounds like that sounds lemmy that sounds to me that sounds like classic rock and roll misogyny where you all that rubbish about what goes on tour stays on tour. Yes, but well, we I, spo- I suppose what we he were was legendary for our for our good beha- legendary for our good behaviour. Yes, well, I suppose yeah. I mean, I think it was also the fact that sometimes if you have to go off for six months touring or eight months touring, you know, and you can't you can't sort of keep that relationship, you know, that communication no. going so well if you're not about. No, exactly. Exactly. So I, I think that was probably, and, and talking to other people, you know, like there's um, Nils Lofgren recently, and he said that, you know, he doesn't really like to be away from home for more than 15 or 20 days because he now gets so homesick because, and, the, yeah. and you know, and, and now we have, you know, like Skype, FaceTime and everything. But in the old days, you would just have to go and, and that yeah. was going to be it. So I think... You'd find I mean, a phone box and say, how's the gig? And it was great and I'm drunk. You know, I mean, that's what it... <laughs> Yes, I know, yeah. those two Ps. I know. mean, that's an ageing thing as well. I mean, McCartney, uh, you know, formed Wings and put Linda in the band so that she could go on tour with him. This is true. I mean, that's admirable. You know, that's that's about partnership. And uh, sometimes bands fall together. You don't, you, you choose your partner, but you don't necessarily choose your bandmates. No. Um, you know, so... And do you, I mean, because that's the one thing, you know, like... Being a fan, you know, people, you know, often talk about reunions, which I always think can be, you know, interesting. You know, and whenever they talk about the Smiths, you know, I know you just said, you know, how much you um, don't have much emotion for the Smiths. But I used to, I suppose. But now, you know, I think, you know, anyway, it's a bit difficult being a Smiths fan, isn't it? For many reasons. But the one thing you would never do, even before Morrissey, you know, in the last 12 months, um, you know, you don't really want a band to reform for various reasons. But you would like to think that the members do slightly get on with each other other and occasionally sort of you know send a christmas card or at least you know meet up for a coffee i mean what's the what's the dynamic like now of the, the the original band um well we 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 all got together for fraser our original roadie he is his 50th birthday and we all were all in the same room for that about three years ago we all said hello it's quite good yes um john john graves and i are still best buddies uh, see each other a lot, you know. We have a great deal in common. Um, uh, two of the band live in Cornwall. Um, one lives, uh, used to live in London and now he's moved. I can't remember where he's gone to now. Yes. Does, um, it, does it, looking, uh, looking, I, looking back on it, does it feel like a very long time ago and the person that you were seemed a very different person? Well, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, I... I um, Especially in the days of uh, of social media, you know, I'm not the kind, of, not naturally, instinctively, the kind of person who makes friends easily. When I get them, I tend to keep them. But I, but I've the the best friends I've had are friends I've made. Uh, the longest relationships I've had, say, with friends, have been two of my best friends I've known since the very early '80s. And we stuck together. Other people I make friends with, and I, so like people at school, I don't really have much to do with. You know, or university, I don't really have much to do with. People. It's, it's not that I'm not unfriendly. It's just that you, 
life moves along, you know. Yeah. So, um, what am I trying to say? I think that it's, uh, I'm more interesting, kind of more interesting what's happening now is going to happen than what happened a long time ago. And what's interesting for me as a musician is that I spent six years in The Family Cat and did two albums. And then since The Family Cat, I've done a project called Jack Adapter and made eight albums. And that's taken me 22 years. So mm. I've spent... I've spent nearly four times as long doing something else. You know what I mean? Yes. Now, some, so you could argue that um, you, I don't think that the family cat is better. It's just different. People remember me from that because we reached a certain level of notoriety. And sometimes it's, I love the fact that people know me as Fred from the family cat. That's it's been a real boon, you know, and it's opened quite a few doors, you know, um, but that, do, but those six years don't define me as a, as a human being. And those, the five people in the band, I'm really still friendly with super friendly with one of them. And that's quite, I think that's pretty good. I think that's good odds. It's good you odds. Know? Yes, it is. One out of four, you know, if you think all the other people you've met in your life and you spent a lot of time with, colleagues and friends and family you know who who do you see that often you don't as you get older you don't see people that uh, so much yes life gets in the way it does and uh, yeah so, so not- i think i think um if 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 whenever i meet up with kev or tim or Jelbert, it's fine you know we went through something together tim tim uh you know I think he feels in a rather. I think that's one of the reasons why the Family Cat got off. We got offered to, to reform. We were offered some money to put the band back together again, and I don't think anybody really wanted to do it. You know, just didn't feel, just didn't feel emotionally and financially uh, right you know life in a band is always a bit tricky but you never know they might reform for the festival of brexit we keep our fingers crossed or not anyway that was the probably the third part of my interview with paul frederick from the family cat and now in jack adapter who have got gigs coming up and a new album and have got lots of other albums as well but anyway i've still got part more part of that interview to go but i think we should play a track this is going to be taken from a 1992 john pill session produced by the one and only del griffith from mott the hoople fame this is too many late nights
arms Now I'll never see you again The rain dribbles through the cracks in the frame Still sounded amazing. That was the family cat with the track called Too Many Late Nights, and that was taken from a John Peel session that was recorded in 1992, produced by the one and only Dale Griffith. Who I always like to mention. Anyway, this is the um, probably the, th- the third or fourth part of my interview with Paul Frederick from the band, and also from Jack Adapter, where I asked him if that if there was a moment when they decided this is going to be, to quote Jim Morrison, the end. A family cat, anyway. No, so. I, there was a little, there was a little descending process, and um, we actually sat in a pub which doesn't exist anymore, around the corner on the Holloway Road, about 150 yards from where I am now. And um, two members of the band said they didn't want to do it anymore, and the, so a third member said, "Oh, I don't want to do it anymore." And then the other two members of the band looked at each other and went, "All right then." And those two members of the band went to the water rats remember the water rats in yes. to see you can't remember who it was now and uh talked about forming a new band immediately so so it was kind of um had an air of inevitability about it um, um did you feel relieved did you uh, feel relieved when when that i felt quite excited about it i felt quite me personally i felt quite excited about it because uh, could try and I was interested in trying to write some slightly different type of songs. Yeah. Um, and it was it, it was interesting because I I wasn't really a singer when I started. I would I always thought of myself as a singer, but I wasn't technically very able when we started. And of course, because there were originally going to be four guitar players. Uh, and we managed to cut it down to three. So it was three, three guitars, bass and drums, and me being the only vocalist, um, I, had to, I had to learn to sing quite loud to make myself heard. Yes. And um, so after a while, 
I was losing my voice on tour. So I thought, well, I'd better do something with her. So I went and had some singing lessons and I saw this great woman called Helena Chanel who'd rescued Shirley Bassey in the 80s when Shirley had a crisis and lost her voice. And I went to her and she taught me how to sing, probably basically, you know, probably had gave me some great singing training is fun and interesting. And um, so I, I thought, well, I don't really, uh, maybe I, we can write some songs which are a little bit more, I don't know, singer friendly. Yes. That blasting out of uh, constant sonic blast. I, I mean, I love loud rock and roll and I love the psychedelic effects that the, that band probably managed to get across. But um, by 94, I was probably ready ready to do something else. Yeah. And, obviously... and so when the band split up and they and I, we went in to see Dedicated, they said, we'll just get another couple of people in and replace them, replace the people who have left. And I, I looked at John and I said, I don't think I really want to do those songs. I don't want to play those songs. <laughs> I, want to write, I want to do something different. And unfortunately, we, we hadn't had that hit. You see, that's the thing. So if you have the hit, like Radiohead had Creep, didn't they? And mm. you, know, you can do anything you like. Yeah. And we hadn't had a hit, so we couldn't do anything we liked. So we were under heavy manners from the label to, to, and they, you know, and it gradually just didn't work out. Yes, as these things often do happen. Anyway, that was the another part of my interview with Paul from The Family Cat and also Jack Adapters, I've probably said a million times already. But look, we're, what we're going to do, play another track by The Family Cat and then another bit of the interview, just for your excitement. Anyway, this is a title, uh, this is titled Fire Music.
is the family cow with a track titled Fire Music. Now, this is going to be um, an extended bit of the interview that uh, I had with um, Paul, where we talk about the creative process and much, much more. But anyway, thank you for listening. Take it away, Paul. You know, so it was an interesting, there was an interesting period, you know, I think, um, I think it's certainly a couple of, a couple of guitar, uh, guitar players in the family cat had become totally disenchanted with the music beers and they're probably a bit pissed off at me for trying to, you know, be a pop star. They didn't really want to be pop stars. They wanted to be something a bit more earthy and a bit cooler. And I just wanted, really wanted to try and make, I wanted to be not a success at all costs, but I wouldn't, you know, didn't mind glamming up a bit, you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and sort of fast forward in you know a decade or so, you put a, you know this anthology together, didn't you? Which which also sort of featured sort of um, songs, you know, songs that hadn't been released before. So bringing that together was that quite um, an interesting experience? Yeah, it was good. It was a good experience because I hadn't approached that material for a long time. And Julian at Three Loop is a a buddy, he said, um, I'd really like to do this anthology. And I said, okay, let's have a look at it. And we did some sleep. So I dug into all the old diaries and found some stuff, to, you know, for sleep notes and things and picked some tracks and, and it seemed, and it worked quite well. And it was quite, seemed like a good thing to do really before nobody, before uh, sell some CDs before CDs aren't being sold anymore. So, and we managed to get Ian Stronach, who did the original Family Cat artwork, to do the artwork for the anthology. And it felt like a nice little... Uh, in lieu of, um, you know, like deluxe repackaging of the original albums, which don't think is ever going to happen... Um, then an anthology picking out some stuff and finding putting some peel session things on there and two or three songs from the sessions, the songwriting sessions that we did towards and towards another album after Magic Happens. I think that it worked out quite well. Yes, and did it? Did it? You know, because I noticed um, quite a few people who've sort of 
enjoyed that process in the sense of some form of completion that often you know some of the records didn't always get completely uh, get properly you know issued in the first place so they could find some obscure songs and also just go through some of the back catalogue like you said put a few John Peel sessions and yeah. and I think a lot of people you know because I, I suppose there's a sort of an emotional thing that's kind of been left wherever the band finished but you know it, you know completion is always a bit difficult isn't it because because it often doesn't you know you don't you kind of wished you could have a nice moment but it doesn't really ever happen like that does well, it? well I'm not sure about comple- I'm not sure about completion uh, I don't think that really that's not really where I'm at with that actually uh it was nice to go back and say oh well we've made these all these we recorded all these songs and they, they sound a lot of them sound pretty good and put them onto a compilation CD. and one of the reasons why we the peel sessions are so good is because uh, as most people will tell you, when they go and do a peel session, they realise the equipment there is far better than anything they've ever be, been recorded on before. So yeah. amps, uh, recording console, producers. That's why Made of L. That's why the Made of L going is a tragedy because um, you get scrappy bands going in there and they come out sounding fantastic. You know? Yes, I know the John Peel sessions were great. Peel sessions were great because all of a sudden the musicians that they've got. You've got a whole day in there to do four songs, but the kit is so good. Like if you're going in and paying 150 quid a day in your local studio in Hackney, and then you go in and you go into the Made of L studios, you're getting fantastic outboard kit. The amps are great. The mics are great. The producers know exactly what they're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. You were, very often the peel sessions of your well-rehearsed songs would sound, would have that little vibrancy and that little little spark of life in there that sometimes it was harder to get in the proper studio when you're laying down tracks you know bass and drums and then overlaying the guitars and then you know there was a much more of a kind of and there was much more a kind of like a, a spontaneity about the recordings in the peel sessions mm-hmm. so it was that was interesting for me to actually go back and listen to how that how those recordings sounded in terms of of um, bringing what that uh, the Family Cat was always a very good live band because of the energy and the kind of like the sonic quality of it. Sometimes that was quite difficult to get across in the recording studio. Not yes. difficult at all in Peel's sessions, and the same applied for any BBC session you did. You'd, if you did the Janice Long show or the Richard whatever his face or the Kid Jensen show, it was the same good kit the same kind of vibe about going in and doing it banging it out you know which we were quite good at so that was nice but what i was going to say about completion was was that i actually went back i didn't listen back to that music with a great deal of nostalgia that was some songs that i did in the that i was part of in the 80s and 90s and in the same way that you know, I would listen to something which I did in 2008 and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. You know, and it's the same process. It's not something, there isn't a cutoff point in in my own personal songwriting journey. The journey is a horrible word. <laughs> uh, I sound like I've gone to California. In my own personal songwriting life, there isn't, there's either there's songs and there isn't songs so i think um that's 
the family cat is just one part of that. You know? Yeah, because because obviously you know you, you you know you you brought out an album this year, and also you'd done yeah you said six six solo albums. So it, it reminds me a bit of um, people like Lawrence from Felt or. Yeah. Or Momus, another person who yeah. just seems to be able to bring out an album a year, and and just is is kind of those two, you know, because I've well, but, it's uh, a very diff- it's a difficult habit to break. So uh, I mean, I was in bands before, as in the Family Cat, not very, you know, not nothing too auspicious, but you know, I got together with friends or or you know, co-conspirators and did all kinds of different things, and the Family Cat gelled, and we got together and we wrote some songs and made some records and. And um, I think what am I trying to say here? Nudge me. <laughs> Making so you know, like you, you know, it sounded as if because I, I mentioned Lawrence and and Moses oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. people who just managed to yeah. do an album a year. Because they, they they can't not do an album a year almost. Yeah. So so you so yeah. So sorry, I lost my train of thought. So having started writing writing songs when I was about fifteen, and then you carry on, carry on, carry on. All of a sudden, you get an outlet for it, and that's and the Family Cat was the first time I ever really had an outlet for it. You know, in the fact that other people would hear them and come to see you sing them and buy copies of the records. That gets into your system after a while so as soon as the family cat finished john and i went off and formed a band and chris cordoba came in and played the guitar and we had a couple few different people coming to play drums and then gradually we moved into just being a two-piece and doing less live and then using other people for live work when we could and then just said okay let's make records let's concentrate on making records and so there's a kind of look, and I wouldn't say it's an organic process, but there's definitely like a tidal thing going on, where or where Chris and I will write a lot of songs together, and then maybe we won't write a few, we won't write so many, and then an album will come out of it, and then so then we say, what do we do with it? Well, you can't just the the, the temptation is to get them out there and let people hear them somehow. Yes. So that's been the process, and then this year we did the album called the Spoiler Versions. Which um, you know, if we, you know, it's um, a record which I'm personally really proud of. Not necessarily more than any of the other records, but this one feels in at my stage of life and my stage of development as a songwriter feels as if I'm really beginning uh, to pinpoint some with some accuracy what's what what music is about you know and that's part of the that's what you learn as you go through you know you go through being in a in lot in punk bands and then garage rock bands and psychedelic bands and then kind of you know we go off into easy listening or something like that and then now we just write a song and it, is the song any good how do we treat it doesn't that all have to sound the same so that's the modus operandi that i have now yeah. and with chris Chris uh, is very good and he encourages me, pushes me into areas which I wouldn't normally do, maybe, vocally or lyrically. And that's, and that's good. It keeps, keeps your spirit and your creativity alive, you know, which when you're not 22 anymore is, um, is a blessing. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting because actually Lawrence did say um, you, you, one should get better doing this with age. Like most professions, you know, if you're a plumber, a plasterer, a carpenter, you should get better. With Songwriting is a bit of an odd one because often people hit it when they're quite young, you know, almost, as, I don't know about luck, but, you know, it, it's one of those things that often, you know, most of the bands go, oh, yeah, their early work's great, but their latest album's not so good. But obviously, you know, listen to Bowie, Bowie's latter uh, albums were amazing, you know, and you thought, well, actually, yeah. now you look at it all because you know he's obviously not going to release anymore. You, you realize those last albums, I know they were a bit sporadic, but they were just amazing pieces of work. Well, they are obviously pieces of work which were very important to him. And you don't go, you don't write a song and then work out how it's going to be played and then show it to somebody and then then, then work out and then get them to record it and then you go in and record. You know, you don't go through the machinations of making the, a record for no reason. The reason is, is that you think that the music is good and you have something to say. And it doesn't matter whether you're, I think, you know, if you look at the great blues musicians or the great jazz musicians, you know, Ornette Coleman was 80 when he died and I saw him a couple of years before that and he was still phenomenal, you know. So age shall not wither them. And I think... Um, if you're doing constantly searching for the new, that's good. If I was just doing, if I was 56 years old and just doing family cat reunion tours, put me in a box, man, because that's not, you know. Yes. I I I, I can do. I could feasibly do it, but I'd need to be able to get my pen out and write some songs, and then Chris or somebody give me some music and say make a song out of it and that's the drive that's still the drive and that's always been the drive you know i mean one of the things in the family cat i remember vividly is when there was a little bit of a professional setback uh i would and maybe I had a few days off and i was at home i'd go go and write some songs and that would be the that would be the the outlet you know I mean, whether it's, I think rock music and pop music is interesting in the fact that in the 40s, if you were, if you were felt a bit upset or angsty, what would you do? I don't know what you do. You get your pen out and what would you try and write something like Dylan Thomas or something? Now we can write, yes. <laughs> we can write lyrics, you know, and everybody can be a songwriter. Everybody can be a singer and a songwriter. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And obviously on that last album, you did have, you know, a guest vocalist. I guess, you know, that was um, from Propaganda, Claudia. So yeah. that, that was, um, was that kind of, because obviously it was one of those bands that I remember sort of getting very excited about when, when they first appeared, bizarrely with Paul Morley, wasn't it, as well? That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, so was she that... that she sings that song really well, doesn't she, I think? Yes. I mean, was that fun sort of kind of occasionally sort of... Um, kind of collaborating with, with people that, you know, I don't know if you were ever friends with her or whether you just managed to sort of track her down and say, do you want to be on this next album? Well, we've become friends with her, which is nice. Um, she's a friend of a friend and they were, uh, and um, our friend David was working with her on doing some some songs and Chris came in and helped them out on some guitars and they got chatting about music and blah, blah, blah. He said, my God, Claudia would sound great on Say When. And I said, well, let's try it out. So we tried it out and she did sang it. She sang it, she learnt it 
brilliantly and uh, and sang it sang it really well um it just seemed to suit that track and i think what's interesting is uh, is i'm not i love singing and i love going into the studio and experimenting with what we, what can be done with the, with my voice but if a song needs somebody else to sing it let's get them in and do it you know yeah. there's a song on the next record called arranged marriage and we've got this really good uh, singer called called Bo Huntress and she's done she, it's kind of like a, it's not actually a duet but it's more of a kind of like a Lee Hazelwood Nancy Sinatra kind of duet you know where they sing they sing different sections of the song um it comes across really well you know I don't have any problems uh it'd be great if we could do an album with uh 10 different yeah singers doing it you know the song still exists the song that's the that's our number one. That's the big difference between maybe what I did we did in the I did in the Family Cat was that was about the sound and the personality, whereas now in Jack Adapter what we're trying to do is this, we're concentrating on the song and the skills of the people who are involved. It doesn't has to, doesn't have to be the same people. It can be different people. So on the last record, spoiler versions, we've got Evan Jenkins to come and play drums. He plays in Neil Cowley's trio. He's a fantastic. He's from New Zealand and he's a brilliant kind of can do all styles. He's a very good jazz drummer. He has a very nice light rock touch. He just so he said, "Well, this guy is really going to be really good on these songs. Let's get him in and do it." You know, and that's a great freedom um, to have an opportunity to work with other people. And as soon as you work with somebody different and they bring something to a song, it makes a song different somehow and better somehow you know yes and i think that's what the joy of it is and that definitely is going to be the last part of my interview with paul um frederick from as i've said jack adapter the family cat anyway you get the gist don't you um but i sort of added a bit more on to what was going to be played on the radio a couple of nights ago because i only had 60 minutes and there was a lot more of a part of that interview which i found fascinating even if you didn't but then who cares I enjoyed it. And that's the main thing. If you want to contact me, um, this is David Eastall, the C86 Show on Facebook, Twitter. It's just go to at C86 Show. I should be there. I will be there. I'm hoping to be there anyway. Who knows? This could be played in the future and I might be dead. But uh, let's keep the party happy and rolling. And uh, if you do get in touch, do make it kind of positive and groovy. Um, Otherwise, mm, go and see your therapist and have a chat about it with them and um, explore these issues that you may have. But anyway, look, I'm going to leave you with two tracks, one by Jack Adapter, titled Number One Record, and then probably more stuff by The Family Cat, taken from a John Peel session decades ago. We don't live in the past. Oh, no. Have a good week. Stay. The 
Don't fall. 